All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens. My name is Jason. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors here on staff uh, at the church. Uh, again, want to wish uh, all the dads a happy Father's Day. Um, I can say that there is nothing that has been more um, humbling as a human being than becoming a father. And, you know, I, I, I think that when I became a dad, I thought that it would teach me the heart of God by helping me adopt the heart of God. But one thing that I've realized um, as I live with life with my kids is actually it's, it's my kids who teach me the heart of God because um, each, you know, every day I feel like I fail as a dad and um, the next day they still want to play with me and they still love me. And so uh, the way that they continue to forgive me and overlook uh, my faults and my shortcomings as a father, that, that teaches me so much about grace. And so um, happy Father's Day uh, to all of you. Um, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 to 19a. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a, just the first half of verse 19. Uh, if you're following along on a mobile device and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Okay, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a. This is the reading of God's word. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes and our ears to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, back in 2019, uh, there was an op-ed that was written in The Atlantic that was titled, I wasn't a fan of BTS, and then I was, okay? Like that transition from the, the word to this. Okay, this article essentially describes in detail um, this journalist's transformation from complete non-believer to army, pretty much overnight, okay? And you're not supposed to read super long quotes when you preach, okay? That's like the cardinal sin of preaching, especially not at the beginning of the sermon, but I'm going to do it, okay? Please bear with me, uh, because I just need you to read an excerpt from this article, and it says this. I'll put it up on the screen. In the beginning, I treated BTS like a puzzle to be solved. I poured over YouTube comments for phrases and terms I didn't understand. Why are people saying, I purple you? What does it mean to have a bias or to be OT7? Yeah, I hope I'm saying that right. I don't even know. Why is Jungkook called the golden mangne? I watched not only music videos and performances, but also meme compilations, dance practices, interviews, and explanations of the complicated fictional universe running through BTS's work. I tried to approach the group with a distance that came naturally to me as a journalist, but that was also probably informed by an inchoate desire to not become a boy band fan. The more I dove in, though, the less I cared. I watched BTS perform their 2018 anthem, Idol, on The Tonight Show and wondered how their lungs didn't explode from exertion. I watched the sumptuous short film for their 2016 hit, Blood, Sweat and Tears, and couldn't tell whether I was more impressed by the choreography or the high-concept storytelling. And I was entranced by the video for Spring Day with its dreamlike cinematography. I replayed it and cried. All of which is to say that I'm not the only person who was captivated overnight by BTS. Plenty of other recent converts have taken to social media to recount their own rapid transformation from novice to stan. For me, the journey into BTS's genre-bending oeuvre and their community of fans has produced a joy and intensity I never thought I'd experience as an adult listener. At times, I felt like I was violating some sort of social boundary. I've learned, though, that being a fan of BTS means becoming intimately familiar with the many prejudices and hierarchies of taste that casually belittle the thing you love, and then deciding none of it has any real power over you. <laughs> wow. Okay. I like it. Okay, I like it. Now, I read this article, and it was very interesting to me that the author used the idea of conversion to describe her relationship with BTS, to describe her experience. And well, obviously, um, that led me down a rabbit hole of different Reddit threads and social media posts and blog posts about BTS, and I realized there are actually entire pages dedicated to grown adults sharing their BTS conversion stories, okay? And Every story is different. For some people, it was like an SNL performance that got them hooked. For some people, like it was one of their friends or family members who dragged them to a BTS show. Um, I, I read one story where a person said they converted because they saw how BTS made their sister a more kind, gracious, and loving person. And I was like, how does that, how do, I don't know, I don't understand how that happens. But, but these stories are fascinating and like, honestly, like half of my prep for this sermon was reading BTS Reddit threads. And uh, a lot of these testimonies start with 
you know, I'm the last person like you would ever expect to, or I'm the last person who would ever be caught dead listening to um, this Korean boy band. You know, I'm 70 years old and, and I'm white, you know, and, but I love them so much it hurts. And, and you have these dramatic conversion accounts of these people who once used to scoff at BTS who have now made it their life's mission to tell everyone how great they are. I think you see where I'm going with this. I don't know if there's a better analogy to illustrate the story we're looking at today than BTS, honestly. This story about a guy named Saul who overnight goes from being the greatest enemy of the gospel to being the greatest apostle who ever lived. A serial Christian killer who has this radical encounter with Jesus and has his life turned upside down. This guy, Saul, who becomes Paul and ends up writing nearly half of the New Testament and in doing so becomes the most quoted Christian in history. And what this story will show us is that there is no one outside the reach of God's grace. No one. That the person in your life that you're thinking, that person's never going to change. There's no hope for him or her. They're just always going to be that way. That that could be the very person God is pursuing. And I want to walk through this story one verse at a time. And there's so much here which we can't get to today. But hopefully uh, we can tease out some important truths together about what a radical encounter with Jesus looks like and what that could mean for you and me today. Okay, and at the beginning of Acts 9, we read that Saul is still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Okay, this is a violent, abusive man who wants nothing more than to tear Christians down, who wants nothing more than to delegitimize everything that's been happening in the church, and he's relentless. You know, you know those people who just, they won't give it up. They just keep coming at you. They just keep hurting you. They're like pit bulls, right? They, they just won't stop. This is Saul. And we're introduced to him back in Acts 7 in the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And we read that as these religious leaders are stoning Stephen, they lay their coats at the feet of this young man named Saul. And he was kind of like the ringleader in that time. And he basically stands by, he watches, and he sanctions all of, the, all of these people in this crowd stoning this innocent man to death. But that's not enough for Saul. Because he's a bloodthirsty man, so he's not going to stop until every Christian suffers. And at the beginning of Acts 9, he's on his way to Damascus to find and arrest more Christians, as we read, more people who belonged to the way. Now, if you remember a few months ago, I gave a sermon where I talked about how uh, in the early church, uh, you never went and asked someone, are you a Christian? You asked someone, do you belong to the way? And it was this reminder that Christianity has never been about adopting a set of beliefs. It's always been about adopting a way of life, a way of being in the world. And so this is, what, this is who Paul is looking for. He's looking for these people who belong to the way. And so you have this very angry man on a mission to hunt down Christians when suddenly a light from heaven stops him dead in his tracks and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, a few things I want to note here. Saul isn't out here looking for Jesus. In fact, he's literally running in the opposite direction. It's Jesus who's looking for Saul. 
and it reminds us that no matter how hard we try, and I know some of us try really hard, you cannot outrun the love of God. If God is looking for you, he is going to find you. He will pursue you to the ends of the earth. And if he has to knock you down into the dirt in order to get your attention, he'll do it. I talk to people all the time who ask me, you know, Jason, does God like hate me or something? Why is my life so difficult? Why does he keep doing this to me? Why won't he heal me of my depression? Why does he allow this person to keep showing up in my life? Why does everything have to be so hard if God is so sovereign and so good? Why does he allow me to suffer? And while we don't always know why things happen the way they do, what we do know is that God loves us and he'll do anything it takes to bring us back home. You know, Paul recounts this exact conversion story multiple times in the book of Acts. He does it again in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. And each time he adds a few more details that aren't present in this first account. But in Acts 26, he actually says right after Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He also says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Kind of a strange statement for Jesus to say. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And for, you, for those of you who don't know, a goad is basically just like this sharp stick or it's this spear that shepherds would use to kind of like poke and prod their sheep. And the thing is, these goads, they're really sharp and they hurt the sheep. But the goal is any loving shepherd will use a goad because you need to hurt the sheep in order to keep them on the path, right? In order to prod them in the right direction. And it's very interesting that Jesus uses this imagery to describe to Paul what is happening here. He's basically saying, Paul, I'm not here to strike you down. I'm not here to punish you for what you've done. I'm here to bring you back home. I've been pursuing you, and I'm here to bring you back home. Well, the second thing I want us to see is that notice Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's a strange thing to say because for all we know, I don't think Saul has ever actually met Jesus. And, you know, Jesus has died and he's risen from the dead. Why, why would Jesus say, why do you persecute me? Why wouldn't he say, why do you persecute them? Why do you persecute my followers? And Jesus, what we see is that he's so united with his church that in his mind they are one and the same. There's no distinction between the two. When people say, me and Jesus, we're good, but I hate the church, that's like saying, Jason, I know you and me, we're good, but I can't stand your wife. No, you can't do that. If you say you love me, you have to love my wife. You cannot say you love Jesus and then hate the church. When you might say, well, the church is full of difficult people, the full of the church is full of problems. The church is full of people I can't stand, especially that one person. Honestly, I would come to church every week if I just knew that that one person was not going to show up, right? That one person just creates problems everywhere he or she goes. And if you find yourself saying this, which I am guilty of doing many times, most likely you think very highly of yourself. Because here, what we're saying is, I don't want to be in community with this person not realizing what Jesus had to do to be in community with you. If Jesus is willing to identify with you and with me, surely we can identify 
with that person in our lives that we think we can't stand. And when Jesus says, why do you persecute me? He's saying, when my people suffer, I suffer. What you do to them, you do to me. What a beautiful picture of a God who's not distant, but a God who feels everything we feel. A God who weeps when we weep. A God who unites himself to us in our suffering. Pastor Tim Keller used to say that once you have kids, you're only as happy as your least happy child. And he said, look, your life could be amazing. Objectively, work could be amazing. If you have multiple kids, all your other kids might be doing well. But at the end, if you have even one child who's not doing well, feeling neglected or unhappy, he says, that's the baseline now for you as a parent. Because you identify so deeply with your children. And this is the picture that Jesus gives us between him and his church. Well, let's keep going. What happens next? We read that when Saul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So the first thing that happens after Saul encounters Jesus is that he goes blind. And I think that's telling us something about what happens when we truly see God for who he is. That our first immediate response when we see God in all of his glory is that we immediately see ourselves for who we are. Spiritually blind and spiritually broken. You see, up to that point, Saul was viewed by his peers as someone who had it all together. Tarsus was a very rich, affluent area. It's full of educated people. It's where you went if you wanted to make it in life. So if you had big dreams, you went to Tarsus. And even in Tarsus, Saul was seen as a social, intellectual giant. Okay, this guy was every Jewish parent's dream come true. Okay, um, you know, I'm sure many of you have heard about um, Johnny Kim. Right? He's like uh, NASA's first Korean-American astronaut. And I remember reading about this guy, right? And I was like, okay, that's pretty impressive. Okay, first Korean-American astronaut. And then I found out he was a doctor. And, and then I found out he graduated from Harvard Medical School. And I was like, okay, you got to be kidding me. Well, he's a nerd. And then I found out he was a Navy SEAL. And I was like, okay, you can't even call this guy a nerd because he's a Navy SEAL, right? And I mean, this guy is like an AI-generated immigrant parent's dream come true. Okay, this Johnny Kim, okay? Um, Saul was that in the Jewish community. In Philippians 3, he actually lists out his entire resume, and he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I guarantee you I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning I'm not a Jewish convert. I was a part of the covenant community from birth, right? He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I can speak, I can read Hebrew, which not many people in that time could do. He's like, I'm from the best tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, when it comes to righteousness as it relates to the law, I'm blameless. What a flex. A person who says, in that religious society, any code, any command, any directive, any ritual that you see in Scripture, I've held it blamelessly. Paul is a cut above the rest, and, in, and yet in Acts 9, when he comes face to face with the glory of the risen Christ, in an instant, he's face down in the dirt. For all his accomplishments, he's still just a broken man in need of grace. And I love this subtle detail in verse 8. It says, when Saul got up from the ground, when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. I want you to think about this scene. 
This guy who's on top of the world, who's achieved everything that the person could achieve in that time, now has, someone has to hold his hand into the city. Someone has to treat him like a child. You know, I am almost 40 years old, and I can tell you that one of the things that is most humbling uh, when you, like, become a grown adult is when you get sick or, you know, you, like, you know, something happens to your body, and that this happens more often, and, like, people start having to feed you, and people start having to, like, put your clothes on for you. It's very humbling. You know, I was talking to a brother at our church, and he's a very successful man, CEO of his own company, killing it, doing big things. He recently had surgery on his back, and he told me it's a very strange feeling, because all my life, I have worked so hard to be self-sufficient and strong and independent, to be perceived a certain way by my peers. It's a very strange feeling when I have to call a nurse every time I have to go to the bathroom. And he or she has to hold my hand to take me to go to the bathroom. This is what a life with Jesus feels like. This is what a radical encounter with Jesus does to you. It turns people, it turns grown men who have accomplished everything there is to accomplish into children. But you realize we have to be brought low so that Jesus can lift us up by his grace. So that we would know that there is nothing in us that can save us. So that we would know, as Paul himself says later in the book of Hebrews, that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. You know, one thing you realize as you read this story is that Saul represents both the best of us and the worst of us. He represents the best of our achievements, the best of our religiosity, the best of our spiritual fervor, our worldly success. He is the person we all wish we could be. You know, like he is the dad that my wife writes about on her Instagram on Father's Day, okay? That's not actually me all the time. And that's the dad I wish I could be all the time. He's the person we are on our best days when we're killing it at work, killing it at home, when we have met everyone's needs, when we've resisted temptation, when we've checked everything off the to-do list. But you realize that Saul also represents the worst of us. Out of control, angry, bitter, spiteful, divisive, and what this story is showing us is that we are not defined by the best of us or the worst of us. The best version of myself is still not enough to save me, and the worst version of myself is still not enough to separate me from the love of God. The best of us doesn't get us in, and the worst of us doesn't keep us out. That is the beauty of the gospel. And this is so hard for us to understand in our culture because we love to define people by their worst days and their best days. We glorify people who are doing big things, who are performing well, who are accomplishing and achieving at a high level, and then we destroy them for making one mistake. It's cancel culture. We're so good at raising people up and bringing people down because we define people on their best days and their worst days. And yet grace says it's not about who you are, what you've done, or what you haven't done, what you know or don't know. That's the point. It's a free gift. And that's why grace, as amazing as it is, is so scandalous because by definition, it's given to those who don't deserve it. 
everyone here in this room loves the sound of grace until you see true grace in action. Until you see someone who you know doesn't deserve to be forgiven, who you know hasn't shown any remorse for their actions, be forgiven. You know what is the most maddening thing ever? When you see someone you can't stand, just keep getting blessed, like over and over again. It's really upsetting, okay? <laughs> Nothing grinds our gears more than, you know, and, and they're, they're killing it, and everyone around them is like, oh, you know that person? It's like, yeah, I know that person. You know what they did to me? You know how they made my life miserable? Why him, God? Just not him. Please not him. I mean, can you imagine what Stephen's friends and families are saying, are saying as they're watching Apostle Paul, right? Remember, Stephen was the guy who got stoned, and they're watching now this guy. Ooh, he has an encounter with Jesus, and now he starts to rise in popularity and fame, right? Everyone's like, dude, you hear what Apostle Paul dropped in that sermon yesterday? Killing it, right? Planting churches left and right. Everyone wants to be like him. If I'm Stephen's family and friends, I'd be like, please not him. Not that guy. And yet God says, he's the guy. He's my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see this in the heart of Ananias when God tells him, look, soon you're going to see this guy, Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go lay your hands on him. And God is so funny, right? Because he doesn't tell him, I, don't worry, I had an encounter with him. He's a changed man, so he's cool. No, he just says, you're going to see this guy, Saul of Tarsus. Go lay your hands on him. And Ananias responds in verse 13, Lord, you know who this guy is, right? I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And, and you know why he's coming to Damascus. He's actually coming here to kill more Christians, to persecute more Christians. You know that, right? You know his past, right? You know what he's done to people, right? You know this guy probably should have no business serving in church leadership or serving as a community group leader, right? To which the Lord responds, go, this man is the chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I know exactly who he is and exactly what he's done, and he's the guy I'm going to send. Man, if you put yourself in Ananias' shoes, that is a hard pill to swallow. But that's the gospel. It's always calling and restoring people who the world has written off as too broken to be usable. Now, does this mean that the moment you become saved, you cease to be broken? No, it's actually quite the opposite. Part of living a life with God is that you actually become more aware of your brokenness every day. This is the paradox of the Christian life, that the more you mature, the more childlike you become, the more needy you become. And we see this progression in Paul's life. You know, I never saw this until I read one of Pete Scazzaro's book, and he talks about this. And he says, it's very interesting when you look at the evolution of Saul to Paul. Saul has this big encounter, radical encounter with Jesus, becomes Paul, face down in the dirt, realizes how spiritually blind and how broken he is. 
He starts ministering. He starts planting churches. In one of the first letters he writes, you know what he says? He says, I am the least of all apostles. So he's like, hey, I just want you to know, don't put me in that category. I'm actually worse than them. Interestingly enough, five years later, after he's walking with the Lord and after he's done some greater things, you know what he says? I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Now he's not even comparing himself to the apostles. He's comparing himself to all the followers of Jesus. I'm less than them. And then two years before he dies, this guy has been walking with Jesus for 30 plus years. This guy has been shipwrecked, stoned, persecuted for his faith. You know what he says? He says, I am the worst of all sinners. He goes from, I am the least of all apostles, to I am the least of the Lord's people, to I am the chief of sinners. Did Paul get more sinful as he matured? No. He just became more aware of his brokenness. He became more aware of his need for grace. You know what the telltale sign of spiritual immaturity is? It's someone who thinks they're less broken than everyone else. Everyone thinks that as you grow up in the faith and as you mature, that somehow you should start giving off this sense in which like, you know what, I have my life more put together than them. That's not what we see in the life of Paul. We see someone who as he grew in the gospel, he realized, oh my goodness, I am the worst of sinners. Let me ask all of you a question. How do you judge and see people? Do you define them in light of what they've done or haven't done? Or do you see them the way God sees them? Is there a Saul in your life that you've turned your back on because of a mistake that they've made? Is there a Saul you quit praying for or you cut off thinking they're a lost cause? You see, the problem is not that God is unwilling to save the Sauls in our lives. The problem is that many of us do not believe God is willing and able to do it. But if we recognize that at one point we were all Saul's, that none of us in this room had any business being a part of God's mission, we would live our lives with so much expectation for what God could do in our community. We would live our lives believing that God can soften the hardest of hearts. God can heal us of the worst addictions. God can restore the most broken of relationships. Do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe change is possible? And I would say that for many of us, we don't believe it is possible. And I would say for many of us, we don't believe it's possible for others because we don't believe it's possible for us. I think many of us believe there are people outside the reach of God's grace because there's a part of us that wonders if we're within the reach of God's grace. Let me ask you, what are the things that you feel disqualify you from God's grace? What are the things that you feel disqualify you from being used by God for his glory? God took the greatest enemy of the church and said, he's going to be my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. He says, that guy is going to stand before kings. What makes you feel unworthy or unusable? Is it because you have baggage? Is it because you don't feel you're smart enough? You don't know your Bible well enough? You've done some things? 
you're not good enough. Because if this story tells us anything, it's that it's often the very things that you think disqualify you that God wants to use as the very instruments for redemption, to show the world His power. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are strong. That's not just a nice bumper sticker. You know who wrote that? This guy. All the one-liners that we put in our office, in our homes, most of them are written by this guy. They're not just cliches. For him, it was real life. He knows what it was like to be an enemy of the gospel and all of a sudden have the power of God transform him from the inside out. So when he says God uses the weak to confound the wise, he's speaking from firsthand experience. If new life is not possible and we're still enslaved to our sin, then Jesus' death was meaningless. Friends, Jesus was nailed to a cross so that you and I would know that our past mistakes, our inadequacies, our shortcomings do not have power over us anymore. That the things people have said about us and have done to us do not have power over us anymore. That the only identity that matters now is that we are beloved children of God. On the cross, God wipes our slate clean and says, your past will not define you. Let me tell you about your future. If Acts 9 teaches us anything, it's that new beginnings are possible. That guess what? Harsh, overbearing people can actually become kind, loving people. I talk to married couples all the time who tell me, my spouse, it's just, it's just the way he or she is. They're never going to change. And I just have to learn how to live with it. Can I tell you that if we believe the resurrection is true and new life is possible, harsh, overbearing people can become kind, loving people. Families and friendships that feel unsalvageable, where you say, my parents are old, they're not going to change, it's just going to be this, until they die. Can I tell you, those families can be restored. Can I tell you that those, those of us who've experienced sexual abuse and spiritual abuse, who do not believe we can be made whole again in the gospel, we say that new life is possible, that you can be made whole again. This morning, every person in this room has the opportunity to start over. This is why it's such a beautiful promise in the Bible when we read that his mercies are new every morning, that when we wake up, we have an opportunity to start over. You also have the opportunity to be an Ananias, to come alongside someone you may have preconceived notions about, someone you have dismissed, but someone God is calling you to love as your brother or your sister. You realize this story is just as much about Ananias as it is about Saul. And I love the first thing Ananias does when he sees Saul. We read that he lays his hand on him, and you know what he calls him? He says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's Ananias saying, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what they're saying about you. And I know what they're going to say about me probably being here with you. But you're my brother now. And Jesus has sent me 
to open your eyes and show you his love. This is the heart posture of someone who understands the great gift of grace they've been given. And this, my friends, is the kingdom of God, where enemies become brothers, persecutors become apostles, and orphans become sons and daughters. This is the promise of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. I want to give us an opportunity to respond um, to this word. And I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. First, who have you dismissed or hated in your heart because of something they've done? Who have you lost hope in? Who have you judged? You know, DC mentioned this earlier, but I know Father's Day is complicated for many of us because that person is our father. What might it look like to see that person not through the lens of their past, but their future? What might it look like to believe that they too can experience a transformed life, possibly through you? Maybe for some of us, the person we've lost hope in is ourselves. Maybe we've started to believe what others have said about us, that change isn't possible, that we are going to be this way for the rest of our lives. What would it look like for us to receive the grace of God again? A God who, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, does not hold our sins against us, but who offers us new life and new purpose. I believe God wants to encounter every person in this room today. And when he encountered Saul he had every right to slay Saul on the spot. And yet instead, Jesus says, get up and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. Translation, get up. I have a purpose for you. I have a future for you. I have not come to pay you back, but to bring you back home. Would you just take a moment and let God speak that over you? Lord, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we treat others and ourselves more harshly than you do. In your word in Hebrews 8, you tell us, I will remember your sins no more. God, thank you for the gift of this story of the Apostle Paul reminding us that every person has a future in your kingdom. Regardless of who we are, what we've accomplished or haven't accomplished, 
what we've done or haven't done, what has been done to us, every person has a future in your kingdom. And so God, this morning I pray that you would encounter us again. That you would show us not only how broken we are, but how loved we are. How in need of your grace we are. And I pray that we would be struck again by the wonder of your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for the promise of the gospel that promises us that new life and restoration and a new beginning is possible. We thank you for this word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.